Your insurance needs are as unique as the work you do and the industry you're in. Having the right protection in place is just the start. There's so much you can do to mitigate risks to your business for today and as you grow. At Sovereign Insurance, we're here to help with valuable information, insights, tips, and tools to help you protect your operations. Visit SovereignInsurance.ca to learn more. As a small business owner, you are the business, and you know the time you're spending on payroll and HR could be spent in a hundred better ways. Ceridian PowerPay is fast, simple, and intuitive software trusted by over 40,000 Canadian small business owners like you. Automate your HR and payroll processes, keep track of compliance, and pay your people from your desktop or mobile phone. Free up time to focus on what really matters when it comes to your business, and get back to doing what you love with Ceridian PowerPay. Applications are now open for the Canadian Export Challenge, CXC 2020, presented in partnership with UPS, the Trade Commissioner Service, and Export Development Canada, along with MasterCard and Scotiabank, and powered by Google Canada, is the first nationwide fully digital pitch competition for Canadian exporters. This year, the Canadian Export Challenge will be accepting all first-round pitches through online video submissions. Don't miss your chance to pitch for up to $25,000 cash and up to $100,000 in support. What are you waiting for? Submit your pitch video now. The free events are open to attend for all Canadian entrepreneurs and anyone interested in learning more about the Canadian export ecosystem. Register at startupcan.ca forward slash CXC. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. I'm your host, Rick Spence, business journalist, editor, public speaker, and entrepreneur. After 15 years as the national entrepreneurship columnist at the National Post, and as the former editor and publisher of Profit, the magazine for Canadian entrepreneurs, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, scalable, and successful. On this show, we connect you with Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. You'll meet the people driving the entrepreneurial movement and we'll share their first-person adventures and their tips, hacks, and best advice for running startup and growth companies. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 3.5 million entrepreneurs. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere else you listen to your podcasts. To entrepreneurs everywhere, this is your show. Ladies and gentlemen, entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Danish Yusuf. Danish is the CEO and co-founder of Zensurance, a Toronto technology startup focused on commercial insurance products and distribution, and it's really disrupting that marketplace. Danish is a former leader in McKinsey and Company's digital insurance practice, supporting insurance clients and in defining their digital strategies. Previously, he was a software architect and developer at IBM Canada. He's earned a bachelor's degree in software engineering from the University of Toronto, and he has an MBA from a little school called Harvard. Welcome to the show, Danish. 
Thank you very much, Rick. Uh, and thank you very much for having me here. Uh, we're delighted to have you here. It's our pleasure. Uh, just before we get started, we'd like to sort of give a preview of the sort of things that we're going to be talking about so people can decide whether to spend the next half hour or so with us. So <laughs> what, do you, what, do you, what do you think are some of the takeaways you'd like, uh, you, you, you'd like to offer the entrepreneurs listening to us who are always looking for new ideas on how to run their businesses better? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a huge believer in the concept of grit and resiliency and the role it plays in the, in the success of an entrepreneur. Uh, luck matters, uh, but grit allows you to be around long enough for you to find luck. Uh, <laughs> so you'll see themes across um, various things that we might talk about that has that concept uh, all the way through. It happens to be an insurance. We will touch on insurance, but it's really that theme that touches on everything that I do. Fantastic. Resilience, is that uh, sort of uh, a top of mind topic these days? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, it, it is quite amazing what all of these different businesses have done um, and the way they've t pivoted. I just heard an example this morning, uh, a hair salon, of course, they shut down. So rather than be a hair salon, what they started doing was pre-made kits for hair management. And then they guide the, home, uh, the individual on how to dye their own hair, how to cut their own hair. And they've done so well, they may never go back to the traditional business. That's Fantastic. a great example of someone pivoting and and uh, being resilient in such a time. Yeah, that's great. So, uh, yeah, we'll definitely talk about that. Thank you so much. But let's get uh, back to, 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 to sort of the introduction there. We talked about Zensurance. Um, tell me a little bit about the journey that you took that, that, that made you think that the, the world needed a new way of buying commercial insurance. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and full disclaimer, I'm not really an insurance person. Uh, I'm more of a technology person. I happen to be an insurance. Uh, but I've, I've now been in it for many years, and I love the space. Um, so just for context, insurance can be broken down into life health benefits as one half, property and casualty as the other half. Within property and casualty, it's insurance for businesses and insurance for individuals. We're, we're on the business side. And that side, probably all sides, hasn't really changed in 50 years when it comes to distribution. Uh, it's a large industry, over 500 billion uh, in North America, uh, millions of, of people involved in the value chain, but nothing's really changed. Uh, you look at the NPS scores, it's second just to telecom providers. Uh, that in itself is a pretty low bar. Sorry, the net, and, the, the net promoter score, which is yes. a, a, judge, a, a metric of how well respected you are in terms of how people would be, whether people would be willing to recommend you to others. You're saying it has one of the lowest scores? Second to last. Second to last. Uh, okay. Just above telecom providers. <laughs> wow, that's, yeah. that's a good company to be in. Yeah, you, you never hear of people loving their insurance company because really your interaction is only upon a time of a claim and you're stressed and it doesn't always go your way. So it's just not an easy industry to be in. Um, and when you look at the way a policy is purchased, um, it can touch five different people along the way. Each, each of those parties takes a cut. So they have their own margin, they have their own expense, they have their own delays. And the smallest thing can take three weeks for you uh, to go from end to end. Um, and that might be okay if you're a large business and you've got a lot of people in time to take care of things. If you're a small business, a nail salon or something, you don't have the time for this. So you really need to be doing this really fast. 
and everyone's used to Uber and Amazon and Netflix, instant gratification, click a button, you're done. Um, and the insurance industry just has not kept pace with that. So having seen this time and time again in different countries, uh, the thought was, why not Canada? Why, why are we so behind? Um, so that, that was the genesis of, of uh, the idea. And did this come while you were working as a consultant in the insurance business? Yeah. So I was a consultant to the large insurance companies. Um, you sit in the board meetings, the management meetings. Everyone talked about home and car insurance. It is a bigger market, uh, more claims, more headache. But people ignored the business segment. Um, it is much more profitable in other areas. It's just seen as more complex. And, and luckily, I, in fact, had a budget within the consulting firm to try and tackle the solution, an internal budget. And as I started ideating and worked with my team, I said, I love this so much. I'd rather just do it myself outside the confines of, a, of an established structure. Let's just be nimble in a startup and do it myself. And so at the end of 2015, I quit my job with a friend and off we went. So, so you convinced another person to come with you? Yeah, someone I'd known for eight years. And we started meeting up on Saturday mornings to ideate, um, think of what the journey might be, talk about uh, whether we really want to quit our jobs. Um, we were both comfortable where we were, earning a decent living. And this just seemed like such a big risk to take. But we, we gave ourselves the holiday break over 2015 to think about it. I actually ended up getting married that uh, winter as well. And so it was doubly hard for me. And when we came back, we said, yes, this is it. Let's do it. We're not getting any younger. If we don't do it now, we may never will. And when you got married, was your partner aware that you were planning to do this? <laughs> yes, yes. We'd, we'd been talking about it for, uh, for uh, over a year. Uh, and in fact, I had been thinking about or dreaming about quitting my job for many years. I just did that uh, the net present value analysis of, what do I expect to earn in a uh, career as a, uh, at McKinsey over many years? And what's the expected value of uh, the entrepreneurship path? And I kept doing the numbers and said, the job is much more lucrative. And only when it was, I convinced myself, look, it's not about the money. It's about the excitement, the control, the opportunity. And it's not really about the money that I convinced myself it's time to quit. Um, if you get lucky, money will come. There's a lot of things that may come after it but it can't be for the money that you're doing it. It's just, it doesn't work that way. Right. As soon as you were saying, started saying that, I thought, yeah, you can't spreadsheet control no, no, not and at all. satisfaction <laughs> and, and, and purpose. Uh, so, yeah. so, so when you were modeling it, were you actually trying to calculate it on a spreadsheet or pieces of paper or just in your head? Uh, no, it was actually a full-blown spreadsheet. Uh, just the financial side of it, I had a 10-year model, I had discount rates, I had exit multiples, I had comparables. I, I, I had a full-blown model on this, and it never worked. See, now now all the listeners know what they missed by not going to Harvard. <laughs> yeah, uh, and maybe for good reason. You, you don't need any of that to, to run a startup. <laughs> all right. So um, what was your first step then in terms of, uh, did you have to get customers first or partners first? How does that actually work? First step was deciding, yes, we're actually going to do this. Um, I had tried a few years earlier with a different friend to uh, launch a startup on the side. We'd meet together Friday evenings, give it a try. The problem was always 
that fire wasn't there. I, I still had my day job and I still had a comfortable paycheck. So that feeling of this must succeed just wasn't there. Uh, to give a, a pretty extreme example, in olden times, when an army went to a new country, uh, some of the generals would burn the ships so that the army said, the only way for us to go forward is to win this battle. Uh, I had to mentally do that. So only when I actually quit the job, that was the first step that I w was fully focused on making sure this succeeded. Uh, yeah, so that, that, that is the biggest thing. After that, idea generation, business plan generation, uh, it, it, we did need to hire some people. So we raised capital. It took us six months to raise a seed round. But until then, we were trying to line up potential people that we would hire, insurance companies that we might sign up, customers that we might engage. But really, we needed some capital to get going. Right. So what did you learn about raising capital for a business that doesn't exist yet? Um, it was hard. For sure, it was hard. Uh, both of us were first-time entrepreneurs. But um, if, if you think about ultimately what does, uh, what does it take to get to success, your idea has to ultimately prove right. Uh, so if you, you're either right or you're wrong. If you're wrong, there's no success. If you're right... Then the next question is, do many people believe you're right or do many people believe you're wrong? If many people believe you're right, other people would have already done it. The, uh, the value would have been arbitraged away and the chance of making a big success or money at the end is going to be limited. So you actually have to be right and other people have to believe that you're wrong for you to have that great fresh start. Um, and so, yes, we got a lot of rejections, a lot of no's, people yelling at me, calling us crazy. Uh, that is just part of the journey and it's something that comes back to that point of grit that I mentioned early on. You just have to plow through that uh, and try and get to the other side. And it never stops, we're four and a half years in, you still have to deal with all of that, but you get used to it over time. Right, right. What pitch did you find or what argument, what line of reasoning did you find most effective in terms of helping investors get used to the idea of that they're investing in an early stage business with with no rel no no revenues no metrics and really no guarantee of success yeah at that stage you really have to sell the founder's experience and the ability for that early team to figure it out because um, you're right we didn't have anything we did we had no revenue no product we, we had a prototype but we had nothing and so we had to convince the early investors to believe in us and in our ability to uh, deliver something along the vision that we had put forward. Yes, the vision had to be convincing. They had to, to believe in, in what we thought we were going to do. Uh, but it, they all said it ultimately came down to us. Uh, that changes as you go along. The, the, the more mature the business is, the more the metrics matter. But in the early days, <laughs> there was nothing to show. Right. Were you part of an accelerator at the time? Yeah, we, we joined the, the Ryerson DMZ, a uh, great facility. Um, they gave us space and programming and, and networking opportunity. Uh, so we, we were part of that. We, we were a remotely part of Mars and I had a lot of friends in 111. And so we were loosely connected to all of those. And just tell me, what, 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 what was the, the actual practical value of being associated with those accelerators? There's a lot of entrepreneurs who do things, you know, all on their own, and they're always wondering, is there an easier way? What benefits did you find from being part of those communities? 
I think the um, for all of those communities, the most value comes to people that maybe are earlier in their career uh, and maybe don't know how to create a business plan, uh, don't understand what a financial model is, uh, or maybe don't have a network. Uh, I'd say there's a lot of value for people uh, in that stage. For us, um, being in the, the, en- the energy in the space was hugely uplifting. There's a lot of other entrepreneurs at different stages, some very experienced, some not so experienced. I, I think for us, it's just that energy that kept us motivated. There were many days where we kept thinking to ourselves, why did we quit our jobs? Should we go groveling back and try and get our jobs back? Uh, no investors talking to us. Everyone's rejected. But talking to other entrepreneurs and realizing everyone's going through it, we're in it together. For us, that was the, the biggest value. That's fascinating. So, so just being in such a positive entrepreneurial environment really helps with those with the dark days. Yeah, many shoulders to cry on and uh, many people to cry on your shoulders. With insurance, you're trying to change the way business buys insurance. You're trying to make it easier. Tell us about some of the friction that you've taken out of the equation, like those business brokers. Are they, are they gone in your model? Uh, no, I think I think brokers will always stay. There's always a need for um, for a broker. For example, you still have travel agents. It's just a different type of person going to a travel agent. Maybe it's a it's a honeymoon you're pra- traveling uh, planning or or something more extravagant. For the simple stuff, you're going to Expedia and Kayak and just transacting. That's our philosophy as well. Take the friction out of it. Um, Take the biases out of it, and I'll, and I'll touch on some of those and the conflicts of interest. And the people that expect a simple, streamlined experience, uh, let, let them do it on their own. There's always a person. We have 50 licensed brokers uh, available for a person to talk to somebody, chat. I've even sold policies off of WhatsApp uh, and text messages. We're, we're available to everybody in the time and the manner uh, of their choosing. Um, the traditional model is, you know, you go, you shake a hand, you, you fill in paper, you fax it, you pay by check, you wait three weeks. Um, you can go online and buy a Tesla and you get confirmation in minutes. Why can't you buy a $300 policy online? Um, so think of it as like a kayak or an Expedia, uh, for small business insurance. Um, and just from, from the other side of the transaction, from the, the broker side, when you look at these smaller policies, five hundred or a thousand dollars, the individual broker might make fifty or a hundred dollars on the transaction, and they typically win one of five uh, quotes or one of five attempts, so a twenty twenty five percent win ratio. So naturally, uh, as any salesperson would, they would gravi- gravitate towards the larger customers, and the smaller ones don't get the the respect or attention they need. Um, when it's automated, every single customer, even if you are uh, a nail salon, a drywaller, uh, a sports therapist, whatever you are, you get a high level of service, you get a uh, fast turnaround, and you always have somebody you can talk to if you want to. That, that's our model. Uh, there's a variety of other conflicts of interest in the past that, uh, that we're trying to solve. We haven't solved everything, but we're trying to solve those as we go. So it's, it's, your solution is more than technology. You described yourself as a technology guy, but, the, but it, it, it's a platform, it's a different type of service, it's a different approach to things, but it's not all about the technology. You're absolutely right. Um, technology is the base. Uh, we are 
modifying insurance policies themselves to make them more suited for online distribution. You can't just take something that existed offline and put on a website and call it a day. So we're changing that. We're changing the way we're behaving in the value chain itself. Um, in the past, you might have seven entities in the value chain. We've already taken out two or, or become two more ourselves. So we control more of the value chain. It allows us to be faster and more competitive. Uh, and operationally in the back, uh, if you come into our office, we don't look like, well, today we look like nothing because of COVID. But pre-COVID, you come in, it doesn't look like an insurance brokerage office. It looks like a technology company. You've got screens. You've got all kinds of things going on, analytics, uh, like you would expect from uh, a high-end tech firm. So there's an operational innovation as well. And everything has to be humming together for us to get to where we want to. No, no one thing on its own can get us there. Right. So when did you first realize that, you know, you figured that this thing was going to work? Mm, I, I still ask myself that often, hey, will we work at scale? Um, but we had uh, early signs in 2017. Ultimately, our vision is create an experience online that a business owner would be comfortable enough to, to go to our website, learn about products, uh, and just purchase the insurance policy with little to no interaction with a human. Ultimately, that's what we'd like to do at scale. And in 2017, we had a customer that went through the website, answered the questions, uh, entered their credit card information, hit buy, and we issued the policy uh, with no human interaction. And we said, wow, this is a, a huge moment. This is something we're waiting for. We've done it once. We just now need to do it 100,000 more times over the next few years. That was the time we all got up, hit the sales gong, went for ice cream. In fact, uh, there was a Baskin Robbins in the basement. And we came back and said, okay, five more years of this and we'll be there. <laughs> How many times has that gong been, been rung again? Uh, thousands now. Thousands. Uh, thousands, yeah. yeah we, we issued our 10,000th policy just two or three months ago. Wow. Well, congratulations on this. Um, what impact do you think you've had on the industry? Are we seeing a change in insurance rates? Are we seeing any changes in the behavior of uh, competitors? Um, it's a great question. We're still a very, very small player in a massive industry. Uh, I think we will eventually have a bigger impact. Today, there's still disbelief. Uh, I still get attacked on LinkedIn all the time. People saying, you're crazy, this won't work. And in fact, I, I, won't, I won't name the person. I was listening to a podcast recently, a very senior person in the industry, just saying, hey, this online thing just won't work. We're a relationship business, face-to-face, -face, handshake. That's the way we sell. Uh, and my view is, no, no, both must exist. Uh, both channels must exist. So I don't know if we've had a huge impact on the overall industry, um, but at least for our customers, more and more people come to us and say, wow, this is so easy. Um, we've in fact had customers say, this is too easy. Are you guys real? Is this a real policy? So we had to actually go in and make some of our documents a little bit uglier so people would believe <laughs> this is a real policy. Um, <laughs> and we, we'll put a pretty cover page, but the inside we, we intentionally keep ugly. Um, we intentionally put certain questions and delays so people think that it's something real. It just ended up being too easy. I don't know how real it is, but at one point someone had said the Lexus vehicle in the early days was too quiet and people didn't realize it was on. So they had to put in more engine noise uh, for people to realize the car is on. So we still do that. I think COVID has a huge impact. Uh, up until a couple of months ago, 
many insurance companies still required wet signatures, check payments, uh, phone calls. A lot of that has now gone away. Um, so uh, ironically, COVID has had a bigger impact on the overall industry than we have had thus far. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, you had a, 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 you, you signed a deal with one of the big insurance companies a couple of years ago. What can you tell me about that? Sure. Um, it was a tough decision. Um, at that point, we had venture financing, so independent financial investors, and we were only a little over a year in. And it was complete luck how, uh, it was travelers insurance, it complete luck how we came, up, came through to them. We, just, just very random luck, I was at a presentation and, and they reached out to me after that and, and then kept talking. But really the decision was, do we go the traditional venture route uh, and take a couple of million dollars? Or do we work with a strategic that can really help us at the back end of insurance? Uh, it came with a majority stake, but a whole lot more money. Uh, it was more money than we'd ever expected. And ultimately, we did the deal with travelers. Uh, it turned out to be a fantastic thing. They're a great partner. Uh, it is an insurance company. Uh, so to make sure we are still operating as an independent broker, we work at arm's length. Uh, we have policies in place. We don't share data. Um, but that, that transaction was a fantastic decision in, in the history of the company. So travelers came to you and they wanted a piece of the future of the insurance industry. Is that what the, their thinking was? So, so um, they're one of the largest insurance companies in the U.S. And if you look back maybe 15 or 20 years in personal insurance, Geico and Progressive are the first ones to go online. And they basically own the market. They have... Uh, a significant proportion, and it's very hard for anyone else to catch up. So fast forward now in commercial insurance, many big insurance companies are saying, we don't want that to happen again in commercial insurance. So they're now clamoring to, to be a part of marketplaces or other online solutions. So they're part of the next wave. Um, I believe the same thing that happened with home and car insurance in the U.S., uh, not yet in Canada, uh, but that same thing with online experiences, simple transaction that'll happen here and so with travelers uh, presumably they did not want to be left behind in commercial insurance right and selling your baby to uh to an organization as you as and as you mentioned it's a majority stake so it's their baby um yeah uh, what what kind of discussions did you did 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 you guys have in terms of was this the right thing to do? Is it the right thing to do now? Is it the right thing for us? There must have been some really interesting uh, questions. It was very tough. Um, it was a very tough decision. Um, we initially tried to brush it away. We, we, we asked them, so how much are you willing to pay for it? And they came back and said, you give us a number. <laughs> so we did some math and came up with a number that we thought they wouldn't pay. And they said, okay. Like, oh, man, okay, now we really have to get serious. Um, and <laughs> it's one of those things we said we should have asked for more. Um, and, again, we made a spreadsheet. We did scenario analysis. We did multiples. We did all of that. And we said if, if we get this amount, then we're ready to sell a portion of our baby. Um, and, and so it came to that. But then we also had a variety of other factors to consider. Would we like working with these people? Do we trust them? Um, will we be, uh, will, will they try to screw us over in a couple of years? And so we had to get comfortable with all of that. And we met all of the people all the way up to the CEO, the, 
40,000 person company. He invited us over to his office. We met him and his team. Um, we had a lot of sessions and we got very comfortable with who they were, what, what their values were. And there was a lot of alignment and vision. And ultimately we said, this is good for us. Uh, it may feel a little early and, and it did, um, but we thought it was the right decision. Well, thank you for sharing that. Cause I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it, 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 it's a game changing event, obviously, and it can be positive. It can be negative and you don't know which it's going to be. All you know is that you've sort of lost control over whether it will be positive or negative. So I, yeah. I, I appreciate your sharing um, your concerns about it. You described them as a great partner, though. So tell, tell me what's made this work well so far, this, this new partnership. It's a great combination of being hands-off and being available. Um, hands-off in the sense that there's almost no question on a week-to-week -week or month-to-month -month basis of what's going on. I create a monthly report and I send it across. Uh, and that's really it. We have a quarterly board meeting where we talk about things. Um, the, the relationship is much more about how can they help us uh, achieve our goals. And I have access to the entire company. They had acquired a company like ours in the UK a couple of years ago. The company's called Simply Business. And they've, they've basically done what we're doing for 15 years or, or 12 years. So we now also have full access to them and their learnings, their mistakes, everything they had done for over a decade, which has had a huge impact on our ability to accelerate our vision. Um, it's it's going to be announced in a couple of weeks. We, we did another uh, even bigger capital raise last week. We're just finalizing um, the release uh, and it'll come out in the next couple of weeks. So it's the... It's a, it's an amazing combination of hands-off and availability. So the capital raise was with Travelers again? Is that, yes, it yeah. was with Travelers and uh, more than last time. Fantastic. Um, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, do I want to be a big fish in a small pond or do I want to be a part of something that has a possibility of having even greater impact? And uh, how would you say this transaction and i guess the second transaction as as the subsequent transaction as well um how has that affected your thinking about the entrepreneurial conundrum of do i want to be a small a small fish a big fish in a small pond or do i want to go for something bigger and um is the pond uh the big company or, or what's the pond in this analogy <laughs> Sorry, I wasn't clear. Um, well, so Zensurance had a chance to, um, to, to, to make a difference, but it didn't have necessarily the resources to do it. Um, right. we, can, we, we can team up with a big company and really have an impact, but on the other hand, we become a smaller right. part in the grow, growing entity. You're right, so the, it's not a very good metaphor. Nonetheless, <laughs> how do you- I get the point. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think uh, we, we didn't have that trade-off. Although we are technically part of a larger organization, we're still run fully independently. We have our own management team, brand, office, objectives, financial plan, everything's really independent. Uh, really what we got is a lot of capital and support to keep doing exactly what we were doing before. And in fact, it will allow us to be a bigger fish in the same pond. Well, that's a good way of... <laughs> closing that off. All right. Thank you for saving my bacon there. Love it. Uh, what one piece of advice would you give to entrepreneurs who are 
negotiating with a prospective strategic partner that can change their lives for better or ill? Yeah, have a very, very good lawyer. Um, we spent eight months and more money than I care to talk about uh, getting the deal done. And as with any complex transaction, 98% of the time is spent on things you hope will never happen. But you need to flesh it out. You need to iron it out. That gives you comfort that, hey, I'm, I'm sort of protected on the downside um, while, while managing my upside. And so we are very happy with the lawyers we had, uh, provide a lot of support. Um, I'll also say you have to get a lot, spend a lot of time knowing the other party. Uh, it's one thing to have an investor, and if you have a bad investor, it's bad enough. If you have a bad investor that has a majority stake, uh, it can be the end of the company. So I, I'd say spend time on both. We don't know how many of our listeners are looking to do strategic transactions, but we know that they all have to come up against the uh, hurdle of insurance uh, at least once a year, once or twice a year. What's the best piece of advice that you could give to entrepreneurs who are reviewing their insurance needs in a post-COVID world? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. It, it, this question comes to us uh, dozens of times a day. Um, there are a lot of businesses that are changing their business today. Uh, a retail business selling online, a, uh, a sports therapist doing online therapy. Um, you should not assume that as you change the business that your insurance policy will change with you. You have to declare to your insurance company what you're up to, what the new forecasts are, what your new business looks like. Uh, and don't be afraid to change insurance companies if you have to. Not every company will support every type of business. So whatever it is you're up to, disclose it to whoever your insurance provider is uh, and get confirmation in writing that this new flavor of your business uh, is acknowledged by the insurance company. Can you give me an example of where a business might do a switch? Maybe it's that hairdresser that we talked about a few minutes ago um, that might have insurance implications. Yeah, let's, let's pick up on that uh, hair salon example. It's actually a local downtown Toronto uh, business. Um, in the past, they were insured for, let's say someone comes into the salon, slips and falls on some water and they injure themselves, or they're cutting hair and they accidentally pierce someone's skin. That's really what their policy would be for. Now they're actually selling physical products to people that they would use at home. So the product can malfunction. It's a very different type of coverage. Um, they are selling stuff online. So there's a cybersecurity exposure because their systems could go down or, or their data could be hacked. Um, so it's, not only does the type of product change, or sorry, not only does the coverage change, but you may need additional types of insurances to cover your new exposures. And and this is really interesting because as I see organizations pivot and evolve due to the challenges that we're facing these days, I don't hear anyone saying, well, let's just run this by our insurance company first. <laughs> yeah, you don't think about it. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. You may be working in an office space and now you're working from home. Um, you're not necessarily automatically covered for, for doing work at home. Even as simple as that, you need to notify your insurance provider. And what are, what are you seeing? Are insurance companies trying very hard to help people over these times? Or are they sort of taking a more uh, old school route and saying, well, this is very different. We'll have to uh, uh, go into this and figure out how we can charge you more. 
No, I think by and large, the industry is there to protect the customer. Ultimately, um, even brokers, insurance companies, we're only in business uh, so far as we are helping our customers. So I think I think there's a real positive intent here. But uh, it is quite possible that an insurance company is happy to insure a, uh, a hair salon, but they just don't want to insure somebody selling products online, especially if those products are, say, sold outside of Canada. Um, so there's, I don't think there's ill intent there. It's just who, which company specializes in what type of business. So you may need to shop around. Right. In these in these COVID times, you know, you run an organization with how many people? Uh, we are ninety as of yesterday. Ninety as of yesterday. Congratulations. Uh, that, that's a that's a sizable organization. What are some of the uh, changes that you think businesses should be thinking about and looking at in 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 times of COVID? What what are some of the opportunities or uh, problems that you come against that you that might not be obvious that you'd like to let other entrepreneurs and business owners know about? Yeah, I think first of all, say market dislocations like this, the downturns. So many companies are created during this time. Uh, WhatsApp, Venmo, Uber, Slack, Square—they all started around the two thousand and eight, two thousand nine time in the financial crisis, and combined, they're worth hundreds of billions of dollars. Uh, uh, diamonds are only formed under pressure. So there's all of these examples or metaphors you can use to say in bad times come opportunity. Um, there's a lot of things that you now see, um, like this hair salon example, is a really simple example of someone just pivoting. Clearly, uh, digital health, um, you could not get an online doctor's appointment to save your life literally six months ago. And now that's all you can get. So I'd say, um, there's that digital health thing that we've seen a lot of demand for um, all forms of e-commerce and supporting businesses. We've seen a lot of warehouses pop up because people are doing online commerce. You need places, places to uh, save stuff. Uh, we've seen packaging companies flourish because you need to package stuff before you sell them. Uh, a lot of delivery, last mile delivery. Uh, we see that pop up. It's, it's an interesting business we're in because we see all of these companies flooding for insurance um, I wish had, I had a way of investing in these themes just by seeing the type of stuff coming to us. Um, so all of this stuff, it's stuff we see every week and um, could create an opportunity for someone that, that is willing to take the risk and go for it. Right. Now, if you were just coming out of school today and you were you and you wanted to look, you, you wanted an industry to disrupt and insurance is now off the table because <laughs> you're already doing that. Uh, what what industries or sectors do you, do you do you see that you think are still amenable to someone coming in and trying to automate, simplify, re remove the friction? Um, the way I would pick it is which industry is buying the most number of fax machines. That's the next one I would go after. <laughs> <laughs> you know, literally, you look at an insurance forum and they ask you what version of Windows are you running. What, you know, what fax, what's your fax number? Um, and so I, I have dabbled into this a little bit. Uh, there's a lot of various forms of financial services that still fall into this, um, be it health insurance, life insurance, mortgage. Uh, that, that's a big area. And uh, through because of family reasons, I had to engage in the, the healthcare system here over the last uh, year or two. And I, I, there is just so much opportunity to both improve patient outcomes as well as the efficiency 
uh, of the system itself. It, it's much harder given it's a uh, government-run system, but uh, I would love to do something in healthcare um, because of the impact it would have on people. Right, right. Um, I find that lawyers still use a lot of faxes. Are they ripe for disruption too? <laughs> yeah, there are a, a number of companies going after that space. Um, it, it, it's possible. I, I definitely see some value there, but um, having been through a big transaction, I, I, can, I can see using some streamlined systems for really basic stuff, maybe a home closing, but anything really important, um, I want to know, hey, it's Bob or Jane, and I want to meet Bob and Jane, and I want to really make sure I have the best person out there. However, having said that, I can see a time in five or 10 years that a lot of that could be done by systems and it's just checked off or validated by a person. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I, I would believe that the, the legal industry has an opportunity as well. Right. We talked right at the top of the show about grit and resilience. Uh, is insurance resilient? Do you have grit? Me personally? Well, the company. Oh, the company. Um, I think so. Absolutely. It, it's, um, it, it's something that we talk about a lot. Uh, we've had ups and downs throughout the company. I remember um, we came to a point where we were five days away from being able to make payroll. Uh, and we said to ourselves, what's going to happen? And we finally closed the deal, got the money and moved on. Um, we've had staffing changes. We've, we've, uh, insurance companies have come and gone. Big customers have come and gone. Um, we just have this shared vision and this belief that we just keep working on it. Luck will keep finding us. We just need to be there for luck to find us, like I said earlier. Uh, and there's a lot of examples in our brief history uh, of ups and downs, and I'm sure there's more to come. Right. What, what, what examples of resilience or gritty behavior have you seen in other businesses around you? You don't have to name the businesses, but I'm just wondering, hmm. you know, if, 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 our, if our listeners are wondering about, you know, am I gritty? <laughs> <laughs> do I do, do I have resilience? How would I know? How would they right. know? Um, it's a great question. Um, huh. So th there are several other examples of businesses locally in the travel industry and in the hospitality industry. And one might say, given COVID, you would expect them to shut down. And there's articles of how they stepped back, they thought about the opportunities, and they really changed their business model. And there's one in the Globe and Mail a couple of days ago uh, of how in the travel industry, despite all of this, they switched, and they're actually thriving now. So that, that's, uh, that's an example of how I'd say, if you didn't have grit, maybe you would have given up, maybe you would have said, oh, there's nothing I can do, it's a worldwide phenomena, uh, but you hunker down, uh, you do your wargaming scenarios, what are the different options I have? What are the ups and downs? You make tough decisions. Sometimes you have to shrink the business in order to then come back and, and live to fight another day. Um, and there's many examples locally, people that I've spoken to personally of uh, having to have gone through this and hopefully we'll make it through the other side. Right. Who would uh, your role models be for grit and resilience? Hmm. That's a great question. I haven't thought about it for grit in particular. Um, so um, one of my favorite books is The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. Amazing story of the grit he personally showed over his career with the various ups and downs through Netscape and all of his other endeavors. Uh, 
I would say those stories are, are role models for me. I've never met him personally, but having read that book, I just bought his other book, um, something I think every entrepreneur should read. Fantastic. Okay, that's great. Uh, just before we sign off, we do like to ask for the best piece of business advice that you have to offer that we haven't already discussed. People are always looking for good ideas and new insights. So what's the yeah. best piece of business advice that you'd offer an entrepreneur who was really striving to get it right? Sure. Um, I'll give you three quick things. Um, don't feel like you have to follow all of the commonly accepted practices. Uh, challenge the beliefs. For example, you asked me for one, I'm giving you three. Um, <laughs> uh, many people say go out, network, make friends, meet people. Of course, do that. But occasionally isolate yourself. Um, turn off your phone, shut off your laptop. Um, I love a quote by Michelangelo. I'm going to adapt it a bit uh, for our purposes. But the slab of marble over there is, is the opportunity. You just need to chisel away to find the masterpiece of a business that's hiding inside. And you can't do that if there's all those distractions around you. So you have to find your quiet time. And I do that a couple of times a week. Uh, and then lastly, when it well, comes just, to- Just a sec, I like that. T -t Tell me, what are your quiet times? What, how do you get that isolation, that time to really think and reflect? So I'll talk about pre-COVID times. Post-COVID is very easy. Uh, <laughs> Pre-COVID, <laughs> in fact, I try and get out and meet people now. <laughs> Too much isolation. Uh, but in the past, uh, when it was good weather outside, I would go to one of the coffee shops uh, that had a patio. I'd be there at 6.30 in the morning. I'm an early riser. Uh, and I'd spend somewhere between two and three hours there twice a week. Uh, just with a notebook. I'd make notes, think about my day, think about the week and the month. Uh, this was a piece of advice I got from, uh, from Mike Katchen at Wealthsimple, uh, who said he practiced this. And immediately I said, I want to do the same. So I followed that. Uh, in the winter times, I, I would try and find either a corner in the office, which is suboptimal. It's best to be away from your natural place. So I would go to either a food court in the path or a hotel lobby uh, and just hang out there for an hour. All right. That's a great advice. So thanks to Mike Katchen for that. And your third piece of advice for entrepreneurs is? When incumbents or insiders laugh at you or put you down, take that as a compliment. You're having an impact uh, and they're noticing you. If nobody noticed you, uh, you probably are not having impact. So uh, be happy that's happening. That's fantastic. Danish Yusuf, thank you so much for this. Uh, it's been a really interesting conversation. I will never, ever forget the facts factor for <laughs> trying to evaluate a business that, 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 that's worth disrupting. Um, but grit and resilience, um, the, the importance of isolating yourself and thinking through, the importance of knowing what you want when going into a deal and also having a really good lawyer helping you think about all the potential downsides. All great advice for entrepreneurs. All of it going to help them succeed. And we wish you uh, luck and success as well. Thank you very much. Thank you, Danish. We'll talk again. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Stay safe. Thank you for joining us this week in the Startup Canada podcast, a weekly show dedicated to unlocking the potential of every entrepreneur. 
Stay tuned another minute to hear the latest startup community news and the upcoming events lineup, including our hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 noon Eastern Time. I sometimes show up there too. Until next week, I'm your Startup Canada podcast host, Rick Spence.